You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled The Risk of Moral Injury in Open Source Research. This week, we were joined by Hannah Storm. Hannah has carried out extensive research on moral injury and its impact on media professionals. Having suffered from PTSD during her journalism career, she has now set up a network to put mental health on the agenda in newsrooms. In the Discord stage talk, Hannah shared her definitions of moral injury and vicarious trauma, and gave insightful tips on how to mitigate their effects. The talk was hosted by me, Charlotte Marr, on Thursday the 30th of November in the Bellingcat Discord server. Hello and welcome everyone to the latest Bellingcat stage talk. Uh, I'm overjoyed to introduce you to Hannah Storm here from the Headlines Network. Hannah is a journalist by trade and is now the founder and director of the Headlines Network. The network, in its own words, exists to create connections and drive conversations towards improving mental health in the media and communications industries. They have their own podcast speaking to media professionals about mental health, offer newsroom training, and Hannah is a qualified mental health first aider. She also co-authored the first study into moral injury and the media for the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Hannah is going to explain her research into moral injury further, and as she does, please put all the questions in the chat, and myself, Charlotte, Charlotte Marr from Bellingcat, um, I'll be moderating the chat as we go along, and I'll ask your questions uh, once we get into the Q&A section of the discussion. Okay. Thank you for speaking with us today, Hannah, um, and feel free to take the stage. I will mute myself for a little bit as you kind of educate us a little bit on moral injury. Thank you very much. And I'm really, really pleased and grateful to be here with this um, growing crowd by every second, it seems to be. Um, so as uh, as was introduced, um, I'm Hannah Storm. I've been a journalist for about 25 years and um, I am the founder and co-director of, of Headlines Network. More about that soon. But I just want to talk to you for a little moment about moral injury and what I perceive moral injury to be. Moral injury has so many different definitions and so many people kind of relate to it in different ways. But for me, moral injury is, and I'm just going to move over to my piece of paper because I've written, written it down. It's when you witness, perpetrate or fail to prevent something that goes against your moral or ethical compass. Now, we all have sets of morals and we all have sets of ethics that are, everyone's different. Everyone's perspective and identity and history is different. And that feeds into our kind of codes of conduct and ethics and morals. But moral injury is really when we kind of, we, as, as I said, we witness something, we see somebody else doing something, we can't prevent something, or we ourselves perpetrate something that goes against those morals. And that can lead to what has been described as a bruise of a bruise on the soul. And for me, that is a really kind of interesting analogy, I suppose, because I think that's how it feels. I've had my own experience, unfortunately, of moral injury, and it often comes with a lot of kind of guilt and shame. It's really important to, to I guess, share the notion or, or to kind of explain that moral injury is not a mental health diagnosis. So in and of itself, it's not a diagnosis that you would go to a clinician or a doctor and say, I'm experiencing this, this kind of these reactions and these feelings. What have I got, doc? So it's not you're not going to get a diagnosis for it. But the really important thing is if left untreated, unsupported, if we don't have the kind of tools in place ourselves, 
and with those, you know, supported by those around us, it can deteriorate into something worse. So it can be a pathway to something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it can, moral injury itself, be very distressing. So some of you may have your own experiences of moral injury as well. And I'm going to talk a little bit about vicarious trauma in a moment and how they're both different, but how they both might also kind of intersect in, in spheres of work. But I just want to kind of just t tell you for perhaps a minute or so a little bit about my experiences of moral injury and why I decided to kind of work in this space. So as, as mentioned, I've been a journalist for over 20 years. I've lived and worked and traveled in lots of different countries around the world. I've worked for all different kinds of media. And I've been asked to do things sometimes that went against my ethical codes. I remember kind of way back in 2003, when I was a much younger journalist, um, being asked to cover some of the, let's just sit across the images coming in from the first night of the US bombing of Baghdad in 2003, and watch across those kind of newswire images coming in and kind of ascertain what was fit for broadcast and what was not fit for broadcast. The impact of that on me was not only a sense of moral injury, but it was also, it caused something called vicarious trauma, which we can talk about in a moment. Some of my other experiences in journalism, I have been um, covering disasters and conflict and civil unrest. And I've seen people do things to other people, which just completely and utterly goes against every kind of code of conduct and ethics that I have. And that's really hurt me. I think one th an important thing to say about moral injury also is that we know that everybody experiences it differently. We know that based on our history, our identity and perspective, we can experience different kind of forms of moral injury, different reactions. We also know, really important to say, that it's very, very normal to have quite strong emotions and reactions and feelings to things that are difficult to watch, to witness and experience. With moral injury, it's where, and with anything to do with other mental health diagnoses, and I've said that this is not one, it's where it continues for a period of time where it starts to affect and impact our ability to either do our jobs or to interact with other people in our personal lives. About three or four years ago, I was diagnosed with co complex post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of experiences I'd had in my journalism career and also things related to my journalism, including sexual assault. And I think including some of the vicarious trauma, and as we can talk about in a moment, vicarious trauma, often the symptoms are very similar to PTSD. What I found at the time of my diagnosis, when I was already on the path to recovery, was that very few people felt safe enough to talk about their experiences. I felt really isolated. I felt very ashamed. Ours is quite a kind of macho industry. It's one that has a certain status quo where people who are marginalised are often less able to share their experiences as well. And I recognised the degree of privilege I had to be able to speak. It was difficult, but I also kind of made it, I suppose, my mission to try to normalise some of these conversations. Maybe that's a quite a grandiose gesture, but it is what I did. And I think that having worked as I did previous to Headlines Network, I ran something called the International News Safety Institute. So working with journalists going to physical um, emotional and kind of digital danger as well. And so I was very, very acutely aware of the fact that a lot of the safety conversations fold into each other. So I just pause there for a moment because I can see some kind of chat going on and I kind of just want to kind of give you time to reflect on what I've said, see if there's any questions. 
And perhaps we can move on in a moment to differentiate between moral injury and vicarious trauma. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your own personal experience as well. I think it I think it really helps illustrate kind of how it can impact you and impact your day to day work as well. Um, I, I can see Anique, my colleague's question, but I, I think you may be approaching that question in a second. So I'll ask Rohan. So Rohan said, it was mentioned that moral injury can't be diagnosed, but my dad, who was sent away on the UN mission in Bosnia, Herzegovina, got diagnosed with both PTSD and moral injury. Does it differ per country, or do you mean it's not an official diagnosis in the DSMV? Ah, thank you very much for that really, really smart question. Um, I can't speak for your dad and I can't speak for you, but so it's not in the DSMV, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health. Um, for those who are not familiar with DSMV, it's basically the US kind of mental health encyclopedia, I suppose. Um, and so PTSD obviously is, is is a diagnosable mental health condition. Moral injury itself is not. Now, moral injury still exists. It's just that you're not going to go to and, and you might well be diagnosed with it, but it's not a mental health condition. So perhaps I explained that incorrectly. But so you so somebody might say you've got moral injury, but it's not a mental health condition. So PTSD is a mental health condition. Vicarious trauma is wrapped in, up within that PTSD uh, definition as well. Important to say, as you've probably gathered, I'm not a clinician. I am a journalist uh, of 25 years and I am a mental health first aider. But yeah, really, really important point for clarification there. Thank you um, very much for, for, for stating that. I think we'll have quite a lot of questions on this one. Uh, they're still coming in. Uh, Rohan says, thank you for answering the question. Um, one thing I think might help with a couple of the questions coming in at the moment is if you could kind of give some characteristics that might uh, kind of uh, highlight to yourself or uh, somebody that you're speaking to that you may have maybe suffering or may have encountered moral injury. Um, what kind yeah. of characteristics would you be looking for if that if uh, that so, happened to you? So. Um... In the research that we did, and the research I did was with Professor Anthony Feinstein, his name may be familiar with some people. He's probably the world expert in the impact of journalist work on their mental health. Um, so it was a real privilege to work with him. And I guess for just as a little mini bit of background, we did this piece of research, I think back in 2015, 2016. And what had happened was it was the year that some of you may remember, it was the year where there were record numbers of people um, coming, fleeing conflict and unrest and very, very difficult conditions and coming across to Europe um, as refugees and migrants. Um, and so there were large, large numbers of people and it was an unprecedented news story. And what we saw was a lot of journalists kind of, this is when I was at the International News Safety Institute, and we'd facilitate conversations about how journalists were coping and the kind of physical and safe, physical and psychological aspects of, of their work. And we were seeing journalists really kind of impacted by the work that they were doing, really kind of overwhelmed, feeling a lot of shame, feeling a lot of guilt. We were particularly seeing journalists who were working in some of the Greek islands, Lesbos, for instance, which was very significantly um, affected by, uh, by by people arriving there in, in, in very desperate and distressing um, circumstances. And um, and so we decided to do this study with the support of a couple of the NC, NC members, particularly Ashton's France Press. And, and basically we looked into emotional toll that this had taken on people. And what we found was this sense of, as I've alluded to a couple of times and mentioned, the sense of shame that people had 
the sense of guilt that people had and leading in some instances to this sense of, well, losing a kind of, losing faith in the people around you, losing faith in kind of the world around you, losing faith in that sense of well, what's the point in all of this, you know, why why bother? I'm not having any impact on this and uh, impacts in the work I do. And I remember interviewing, so we did a kind of um, quantitative research and we did some, and I did some kind of qualitative interviews. And I remember interviewing um, a couple of journalists and them kind of going, well, I've done all of this work, but you know, what's the point? Our government's ever going to listen and so there was that sense of kind of it was morally wounding them what happens in in moral injury terms is if we then don't support people at that stage it can then lead people to have those symptoms rowan that we were, that, that you mentioned there in terms of the kind of moral injury leading to ptsd right so they they, they do they can exist together so it can be things like in my in my case um uh, with PTSD, I had nightmares. I had um, I drank too much alcohol. I um, I, I engaged in other risk, other other forms of risky behaviour. I I was angry. I I was kind of very I was very depressed as well. Um, I lost a lot of kind of sense of kind of of myself. Um, I was avoiding things. So so there's, there's this kind of fine line really in terms of you know you you start to feel the shame. You start to feel the guilt and the moral injury instance. And then I would be worried. I would start to be worried and I would really employ you to seek help um, from clinicians, from doctors, from friends, um, perhaps in the first instance who you trust and just kind of get a sense of like, look, I'm not feeling great about where I am. I'm just going to kind of um, finish up this response in with two things. One of the things we found that was most significant, and I'm very aware of a lot of you, that you folk, a lot of you folks here are working an isolated setting, maybe freelance, you don't have the support of big organisations. One of the things we found was where people felt supported and validated by managers or people who were contracting them to do work, that would really help. And where people were very clear on their boundaries and their responsibilities and their roles, that was also really protective. So I would say that those are the kind of two things to consider there as well. I think you've touched on this slightly, but maybe it would be helpful just at this point um, to answer part of Anique, my colleague's question, which is what would be the biggest difference between moral injury and vicarious trauma? Vicarious trauma is a term that's often kind of thrown around, especially with open source research. Um, So what is the difference between moral injury and vicarious trauma? Where where does that line lie? So thank you, Anique, for that question. it's really important to kind of differentiate and distinguish between the two can coexist. But I think let's just step for a moment back and kind of give you, I guess, my working definition of vicarious trauma. The trauma comes from Greek, I believe, for wound. Um, so it's something that impacts you, something that wounds you, something that hurts you and affects you. Vicarious comes from the Latin for pertaining to somebody else, right? So it's secondary trauma. You might have heard of that phrase. Now, there's an argument that actually a lot of stuff that we perceive as primary trauma is actually secondary trauma and, and the, the kind of the two are quite interconnected. But for the purposes of this conversation, I guess, it's important to kind of explain that vicarious trauma, you might be exposed to things that lead to vicarious trauma through witnessing stuff that you're kind of perhaps visual material, uh, video based material and um, audio uh, researching um, testimonies from from people, um, researching alleged war crimes, uh, uh, 
you know, if, you, if you're covering, as, as I was as a journalist, covering things like court cases. So there's a lot of different, or if you're doing things like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I was working with a news organisation or a news community recently where we were talking about covering school shootings in the United States. And somebody was talking about how one of the folks who had had to build a graphic sequence of that kind of um, what happened was really, really badly impacted. So that person was going through each each kind of step of the of the day or the or the kind of the the, the tragedy, and they were really badly impacted. So it can happen in lot. It can it can be lots of different types of media and medium, um, but basically it's distressing and graphic imagery that can impact you. Now, the other thing that's really important to say from a vicarious trauma perspective is people are affected very, very differently. So we all bring our own history, identity and perspectives to situations, right? So I might be impacted by something from a vicarious, vicarious trauma perspective that somebody else might not be. And they might be impacted in a way that I might not be. So that's, again, important to explain. So it is quite different from moral injury in that way. Now, vicarious trauma itself can lead to some of the symptoms that are also the same as PTSD. Some some of those I've explained already: hyperarousal or um, irritability, avoidance, um, sleeplessness, uh, engaging in you know too much alcohol or you know unhealthy other act other un, other maladaptive behaviours as we call them, or basically unhealthy unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit in a moment about some of the things we can do to protect ourselves um, from vicarious trauma. But I think it's really important to to recognize that it is really it is something that we need to be incredibly aware of. And again, as I said before, it's very normal for us to feel impacted. In fact, I would suggest it's we have to feel impacted in some ways by the by the things that we are witnessed and experienced witness or exposed to right because if we don't feel anymore then actually the fact of being numb or disconnected is itself an issue right so that it's very normal to feel our feelings emotions and be affected in some way what is problematic is when that endures for a certain period of time and when that starts impacting our professional lives our ability to do our work and our ability to kind of live in a kind of to cope at home cope within our personal lives as well um do you want me to pause there for a moment and see if there's any other questions before i talk about some coping mechanisms yeah because fraser has asked a really nice follow-up question actually before you go on to coping mechanisms fraser's asked is there evidence that people who work in different roles face different risks i'm thinking of say photojournalists who make imagery on location researchers who work with imagery remotely like the majority of the audience here and say a journalist conducting interviews with survivors, is there any studies or research that shows kind of different risk models for different roles in the newsroom and wider field in the media industry? Oh gosh, I'm sure there is. And I'm going to pass the buck now because I don't specifically know, but I think that, you know, there's certainly, I can try and find, find a list. I think there's been, there's been quite a lot of work done with certain communities of journalists. So for instance, journalists who you know photojournalists themselves covering conflict there's been the piece of work that um to anthony who i mentioned before anthony feinstein did um basically the first piece of work into vicarious trauma back in 2013 i think it was it was just after the start of the arab uprisings and it was basically a piece of work around user-generated content and how people were impacted by distressing um material 
And what he found in that instance was that actually when people are doing it for their work, so it is, so it's not that you were an audience member. It's if you're doing it for your work and you're doing it in a way that is cumulative. So if you're exposed frequently or in a cumulative aspect to this graphic and distressing material, you are more at risk of vicarious trauma. There has been, you can break down the demographics within various different other kind of studies, such as the one we did on moral injury to say that actually certain demographics um, are perhaps more at risk of certain aspects. We found, for instance, that journalists, and this probably won't surprise you, but the journalists who were um, local to the story. So in this instance, that we were predominantly focusing on, on Lesbos, Greek journalists were more at risk of moral injury because they carried with them the sense of, I guess, pride and identity around, you know, this is my country, my country is letting down these people, but also I have a responsibility to tell the story of my country. So, you know, that's that's kind of me slightly projecting onto it, but this is kind of, this is what we found around, around that. Anthony's done other pieces of work and research around, for instance, um, Iranian journalists, um, how they cope and the things that they're exposed to and how, it, how um, their mental health is affected. Mexican journalists, Mexico being one of the most dangerous countries in the world um, for the last, I think, 25 years to be a journalist. So, so the different kind of ways that they are exposed to um, experiences and trauma, but actually the, the high level at which they are and traumatized. I think I just say one thing before I wrap up this answer, and that is the nature of work of journalists, because I, I speak as a journalist rather than a, an open source researcher, is that a lot of the time we will be running, metaphorically running, I suppose, towards danger. So we will be exposed to things which are not within the kind of normal parameters of, of you know, every other human being's day. And so therefore, our risk load is higher, right? So, so despite, so it's going to be natural that journalists are more at risk of PTSD as they are than the general pop, pop, population. However, the important thing I would say is we've also seen in research that there is a high level of resilience. Now, resilience does not mean immunity. Um, there is a high level of resilience within the community to, um, to. To kind of supporting their mental health and one of the reasons for that the really important reasons is there's a is that sense of purpose a lot, of, a lot of people have a lot of journalists and people who become involved in open source research as well come into it because there's a sense of purpose a mission a motivation to do something there's a sense of needing to to kind of be part of something wanting to change bearing witness etc holding people to account that is really important. It's not the be all and end all, obviously, but that is really important in terms of um, protections to people's mental health. Just before we go on to kind of some of the ways to mitigate, um, TCABXL, I love Discord stage talks because you get the, the, <laughs> the weirdest names. Uh, TCABXL has asked, do you think moral injury will become more present in society as wars begin to be covered more on outlets like social media? I mean, this is quite a timely question at the moment, obviously, as many people in this server have been conversing and, and analysing and working on current conflicts that are ongoing at the moment. Thank you for that really, you know, really important question. I, I'm going to refer back again to Anthony, who I've mentioned several times. Anthony believes that moral injury is one of the biggest challenges that we are facing at the moment. So, so I think because it's more people, there's a because of the broader 
population of people exposed to the threat of moral injury at risk of moral injury. So I would say that, um, uh, you know, I love your name too, TCABXL. I, I couldn't remember which way the A and Bs went round when I was going to respond. But um, I think that, you know, from a moral injury perspective, yes, I think it's, it, the thing is, it is more of a risk, but I would also say that as a community and as an industry, it's incumbent on us to do things, to put in place measures to actually protect people and mitigate against it. And we can, and it's we've we've proven and shown through kind of the various conversations we've had, and there's now a moral injury scale within journalism to measure this, that it is we can mitigate against it. I think it's not just the conflicts as well that you were mentioning there. I think, you know, we've seen through COVID, for instance, the, the pandemic, there was a significant rise in moral injury significant rise in moral injury in health workers around the world, in journalists around the world, in other people kind of working at that space where they saw governments and people in power making decisions that really, you know, expanded that kind of inequity in society. And I think that, you know, we've seen in in recent years with different other kind of marginalized groups with a kind of real focus on the inequity that certain marginalized groups encounter and experience that there's there is a real kind of threat of and risk and a reality of moral injury taking place so just coming back to the kind of current um the last kind of seven eight weeks or so i'm really concerned i'm really concerned about the kind of the the risk of moral injury amongst those who are working or being exposed to um material who are involved in these in in this kind of research and this work uh, both from I'm concerned about moral injury but I'm also concerned about the vicarious trauma and just as an example in the last seven weeks I've given more workshops on vicarious trauma than I've given ever in my career so to me that's both horrifying but it's also a sense for me of like it's it's good in some ways that people are recognizing it it's recognizing that it is happening right because i think that until perhaps until kind of 2022 um in february 2022 with the the invasion of ukraine by by russia people were really not taking this idea of vicarious trauma seriously and so we've for the last kind of 16 17 18 months we've seen this increased recognition that it is an important thing that impacts people and that we need to get to grips with it hopefully that answers those questions yeah, he they replied, uh, but thank you for answering the question, very insightful. So that's really good. Um, I know a lot of people have been asking, have you got any advice for setting boundaries? Are there any methods to limit the effects of moral injury? And one person actually said, uh, do you have any advice for those managers so they can do better and be there for their teams in a healthy, more effective way? So I don't know if you want to kind of mass answer those three questions. Um, in talking about kind of some of the methods to kind of mitigate the impact of moral injury and vicarious trauma. Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about, I guess, I'd rather kind of start with vicarious trauma. And I'm obviously caveating this with, this is not clinical advice, anybody, right? This is this is Hannah Storm, who's been in journalism since 1999, and that makes me feel very, very old advice. Um, and also things that has worked for me. So some stuff that's worked for me won't necessarily work for you, but some of it might. Some of you also, I would love to hear from any of you folks, if the stuff that you, that works for you, right? Because we're all different. Excuse me. So from a vicarious trauma perspective, I'm going to start with that. 
vicarious trauma is often has been described by there's a guy called Sam Doubley, who again did a really, really important piece of work on vicarious trauma back about eight, nine years ago. He called it toxic material. He said it's like toxic material. It's basically we don't know it's toxic. We don't know it's radio sorry, radioactive material, he called it. We don't necessarily know if we're touching something which is radioactive until afterwards, right? So I think that it's really important to treat it as something toxic. And for me, from a technical perspective, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the techniques and and technical perspectives that you might be using already. And some of this might be literally kind of, you know, teaching you to suck eggs. So just ignore me if it is. Um, The most important thing is limiting that exposure, right? So however you can limit it. So let's imagine that, for instance, whatever you're viewing is on a screen and it's on a fairly large screen and you're seeing it on your laptop, let's imagine. If you can limit the size of that, that i would always 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 interact with something if it's if it's got both visual and sound i would always interact with something in the first instance with the sound turned off so interestingly when we think about our senses as our sense of hearing is the last sense we lose before we pass away it's also we have hearing in our mother's womb right so we can hear before we're born so sets the sense of sound is really really evocative and i'm not sure how many of you for instance i'll give you an example of my ptsd i'm quite noise averse to certain things because certain things from my ptsd certain things from my trauma remind me so certain noises so knock off the sound in the first instance if you have the capacity to change the um the color of things if you can have the capacity to go some turn something to black and white that's also quite important um, and I think that I've got this capacity now, I guess, to where I know something's going to be really difficult. And this is not for when you're doing research, but this is perhaps you're skimming through, skimming across social media and there's a whole bunch of stuff popping up and you're just trying to figure out, you know, at a first glance. For some reason, I'm able to just kind of literally look at the top right hand corner of things. And that kind of I kind of know that there's something really grim and shitty, maybe on the bottom left hand corner or the other three quarters. But actually, I just focus on on the right. So. So limiting your exposure in terms of size, uh, the, the sound, um, and then super duper important um, time. So we're really, really, really kind of um, bad um, at, at kind of giving ourselves breaks across all industries, across journalism, across communications, across research. We're really bad at giving ourselves breaks. Um, one of the things the pandemic did is it took away uh, spontaneity. So it took away that 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 notion that we could turn to somebody and kind of go, oh my God, I just saw something really shit right now. Or it took away that sense of, hey, do you go and fancy going to get a coffee? Or it took away that water cooler moment. So really important is actually if we can, because so often when we're invested in something, we'll just go down this rabbit hole, right? You know, just completely down this tunnel on X or in, you know, whatever channel we're using on social media and we'll forget the time. So set ourselves, set ourselves on our phone a reminder to take a break i know that sounds like completely just like obvious but it's really helpful um if you can then take a break away from the computer and the reason i mention this is because anthony said to me that there's something that happens in this in the taking a break away from screen that ensures that images are remain within the short-term memory rather than move into the kind of long-term memory if that makes sense so taking that break allows that image or material to just stay in the short um short term so 
breaks. Okay, I've said explain that. So if you do have the capacity to, to to if you work within a community of people, so for instance, if you have colleagues either around you, which I recognise many people might not, because you might be working remotely, or around you, kind of socially and remotely find people who you can rely on find people who you can trust and who you can say oh my god i've just you don't i'm not saying share that with them because actually i'm actually saying please don't share it with them i'm saying is is you know look say to them you've just experienced something really shitty somebody's saying cartoons is a good way to cope fluffy animals are also good ways to cope cuddly 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 pets um music perhaps if if that works for you again note noting that the sound might be um you might then associate sounds with with other things so um the other thing i would say is things like turning off scrolling turning off autoplay just making sure that you are more in control of however something is 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 popping up as well um super duper important if you're using material which you're then passing on to somebody else there are ways of detailing and i take this piece of this piece of advice from a colleague called druti shah and if you're not familiar with druti shah um she wrote an incredible piece for The Guardian, um, which is now being used as a kind of teaching um, tool uh, on vicarious trauma. She talks about um, using spreadsheets to be able to identify time codes and specific things that have been seen in a way that is protected to other people through passing it on, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that's really important. From a management perspective, I'm going to move to managers now on vicarious trauma. Playing Tetris can help as well. Yeah. And whoever's put it's okay to not, not to be okay, um, thank you. It is okay not to be okay, absolutely. And thanks for, I think Charlie's just put in the link to Druti's fantastic piece. Um, um, managers. So in terms of managers and vicarious trauma, creating a culture where it's absolutely normal for people to kind of go, I recognize it's really challenging at the moment what some people are exposed to and i want to encourage you to take so recognizing that people feel so recognizing that it's a challenging environment treating people so i've just finished writing a book on journalism and mental health and i interviewed 45 people from around the world and two things came up time and time again no matter where people were in the world no matter what level of journalism they were in no matter whether they were clinicians no matter what they did in the kind of media and media development field they would say to me i want people in charge i want my managers to treat me as a human being not a cog in a machine so recognize that people around you are human beings which because he's said than done right because i mean it's particularly with managers that like right just get it now i want it now i want it in 10 minutes um and that also means validating people's experiences too, recognizing that there are challenging experiences, recognizing people are impacted in different ways, trying to create spaces and cultures and communities where people feel safe to say, actually, you know what? I'll give you a Hannah Storm example. Because I've experienced sexual violence, you know, sometimes I feel really powerfully that I want to be involved in stories around this and I want to advocate for um, an end to violence against um, women and girls. Sometimes I'm thinking like, actually, you know what? It's just too much right now. So being able to kind of feel solid in being able to explain to somebody actually right now, and I don't need to explain why, but right now I'm not able to deal with that. That's important. The managers are creating those cultures. And when managers themselves can explain that they're impacted in a certain way, you know, that can be helpful too and kind of share their coping mechanisms, not necessarily saying that every manager needs to wear the heart on their sleeve all the time, but vulnerability and empathy 
is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, I think that's probably around the vicarious trauma. And then just briefly on the moral injury thing and not to kind of um, diminish anything around moral injury, but some of what I've said already feeds into managing moral injury. Supporting folks to recognise what their roles are is really, really important. So your role in this instance as a journalist or an open source researcher is to do A, B and C. Your role is not to do D, E and F. Now, because we're mission driven, a lot of us, we we kind of blur our roles quite a lot. Right. So moving our back, ourselves back to actually right now, this is my job. And also recognising that we don't have to be doing our jobs 24 hours a day. We shouldn't be doing our jobs 24 hours a day because actually we'll get knackered and we won't be able to do our jobs effectively. So the importance of taking breaks, you know, broader breaks than the kind of few minutes breaks that I that I mentioned back there. But the value of taking breaks um, from a management perspective, if you're able to support folks and again, resources being a massive issue around the world, if you're able to support folks to decompress after a story, if I send, if we used to send people into conflict zones, we would always make sure that somebody did a different type of story afterwards, right? So if we can shake up the kind of stories we're doing, again, with research, I would advise that if there's something you're doing, which is really, really difficult and tricky, try to ensure you've at least got time to do something different afterwards. Um, I've got lots of other things I can say, but I think I'll just pause there for a, a bit of my cold tea and um, another question. No worries. I'll let you drink that cold tea. Uh, thank you for talking so much and for going through all those super, super helpful. I, I just want to go through quickly, just while you're drinking, um, some of the responses there, because I think uh, they were really insightful and really great. Um, Anique said sound caused my PTSD. So this tip is so important. Um, some people mentioned, Roma mentioned that we have a mental health and rest channel in this Discord. We do. It's really great. Check it out. It's a place for people just to say, you know, I've had enough today and I'm just here to check in. Um, you mentioned the cartoons, which is great. People playing Tetris to help. Um, Sultan Knife said, who was one of our moderators, said, I always make sure to have a hand free when watching possibly problematic material. I find it's the quickest way to block something and pretty good at covering only what needs to be. So sometimes you don't even need specialist tech on your laptop to hide things. You can physically just use your hand, um, which is really useful. I'm I'm actually quite intrigued, um, Hannah, to, I mean, I know that you often talk to leading journalists about their experiences and also kind of train in newsrooms too. I'm kind of interested to, to hear um, how, Others have told you they've coped with kind of this disillusionment uh, and coped with having to kind of carry on in circumstances like that. Um, have you got any um, testimonials or any experiences of people who've said, you know, I became completely disillusioned with my kind of role, my purpose in this role and, and how they kind of carried on throughout that? Yeah, thank you. I was just seeing a comment about a hoodie. A hoodie helps as well. Or like one of these roll not roll neck top, so you can just that. Um, uh, it's not the reason I'm wearing it today. Um, yeah, there was just a couple of things that came up in my mind, Charlie, while you were talking, and I just wanted to reflect back on those. And thank you for those really great um, insights. Um, if you can, and we don't all have this um, privilege, I would say if you can 
to separate the places you're working on this material from the places you're doing other stuff. So that's important, right? Because let me give you an example. Like I'm in a little, I've got this little room that I've, I work in. And this is, I just work in here. Now that makes me very fortunate, very lucky. I, I recognize that. But my concern is, for instance, if you're sitting on your bed with your laptop and you're, ex- you're exposing yourself to difficult imagery, then that's problematic because that is your resting bed space, right? So if you can, if you can have a particular, even if it's just a chair somewhere where it's your workspace, ideally, if you've got two devices, not many people have two devices. I recognize that, then that's important too. Um, I remember an awful situation a few years ago when I had a small child in the house um, coming past me when there was something really horrible I was witnessing and the speed with which I was able to close my laptop kind of was probably um, world record speed, but it was it was a horrible kind of thing to be like, oh my God. So that's kind of really, um, I think just kind of also understanding kind of who else is, who else is around you as well. Um, so just in terms of um question was how do you cope kind of with all this sense of like basically that's obviously not a technical term um i think there's again you know speaking with clinicians and speaking with folks one of those protective things is remembering why we're doing this so it's and that's not necessarily a, a be all and end all for every day but remembering why we're doing this you know we're doing this to it does make a difference you know we're holding people power abusive organizations individuals authorities to account we're exposing crimes we're exposing abuses we are bearing witness right or we're helping others bear witness so that is really really powerful and really protective i think also you know recognizing it can be challenging and recognizing there can be some really shitty days and actually you know, it doesn't mean that every day is going to be shitty. That's really important too. I think that one of the things I'm concerned about now, and I was thinking about this in, in the book, is this idea that a lot of people within journalism and journalism-related fields kind of act a bit like the very notion of being a journalist is an immense privilege, and which of course it is, but this sense of kind of like, oh, you're so lucky. There are a thousand people standing behind you who would have your job if you didn't take it. And so, you know, my concern is actually we get so bound up in our identity that, you know, if we kind of start questioning that identity, we question everything about ourselves. So one of the things I advise people to do, and it it might sound a bit naff, but, you know, is to find something that makes your heart sing, something else beyond what you're doing that makes your heart sing. And that doesn't have to be all the time. I'll give you an example, like on a Friday in my house, we put on crap music. Well, various members of my household think it's crap. I think it's fantastic. And we dance around the kitchen, having a kitchen disco for a few minutes, right? So it's five minutes of our time being daft. That sounds very Northern English, but being daft, basically just do something daft. Um, That doesn't, you know, invalidate the rest of your work. It actually allows you to cope better sometimes. Um, and then there's a lot of other kind of, you know, basic stuff around self-care in terms of kind of, and it's not basic, it's really important stuff like making sure you get enough sleep and making sure you eat healthily and making sure you get exercise if you can, connecting with friends. These are all kind of, for me, the absolute critical pillars of of, of self-care. But 
I think, you know, back to that question there about just understanding why we do it, but also understanding that there is more to life than specifically this. Yeah, the idea that you're not the only saviour in the world, uh, I think, is a, is a problem. Not only journalists, but open source researchers also struggle, with, especially in times when huge uh, conflicts or huge traumatic events happen and uh, we all rally to kind of try and help where we can. Um, but that sometimes takes a huge toll on us and, and when sometimes it doesn't help um, or kind of the misinformation or disinformation is so strong, it can be very uh, alienating and can make you feel like you're kind of just shouting into a, into a void. Um, and I, Yeah, we haven't touched on it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And we haven't really touched on the misinfo and disinfo. And I'd say that that itself in itself is, is a real, really significant kind of factor for moral injury as well. Um, because it's like, well, oh my God, we're fighting against this kind of just this thing all the time. It's like, how the hell can people believe that? And at the moment, you know, we're seeing significant kind of polarized narratives and so much need for nuance as well. And um, I, I just I think on the, I just want to say one thing about the kind of, you know, we're not the only savior. We are doing a great job. We are doing a grand job. We're doing it really well. But and when we're very, very poorly, we can't look after ourselves. OK, but a lot of the time we can. And so, for instance, you may have heard me say this, Charlie, already. But, um, you know, in, in English, mental health begins with two letters, M and E. And that's me. So, you know, you can't be of any good to anybody else if you don't look after yourself. You may, those of you who have flown before, you may have heard the airline safety briefing analogy of putting on your own oxygen mask first. Same thing. You can't help the person next to you if you don't help yourself. And so you can't do the story. You can't cover the story. You can't research the evidence. You can't do the work that you're doing, which is vital, unless you are well enough to do it. And the better you are doing it, the better work you're going to do, basically. Um, I'm not sure if you can speak to this, but it kind of uh, kind of jumps on to the point that we were just talking about with misinformation, disinformation. Sundan Shrum uh, mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, they asked, are the various social media companies trying something to mitigate these problems by discussing with people who deal with things regularly? I can appreciate the platform's roles to provide much more transparency than before, and it's surely hard to mitigate them in live streams such that I believe they have some duty to their users. Also, does false news generated by AI and other methods aggravate the situation? Do you have anything to say in terms of the role of social media in terms of making uh, or talking to journalists and talking to mental health professionals about the risks that kind of the content that's kind of swirling around these sites at the moment uh, has? I mean, I've been having conversations on and off for probably the last six or seven or eight years with different social media channels and platforms around the duty of care that they have you know, in terms of, you know, keeping people safe. And there's a lot of conversations taking place. Unfortunately, I don't actually see a great deal of um, movement and action. I see some, um, but not enough. And some of it, I think, is quite frankly lip service. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot more that can be done. Um, they'll be passing the buck and they're saying, oh, this is not, you know, this is this is not our role. But I think I do think that, you know, there's an important role that they do play. I think that lots of different people 
stakeholders, if you want to use that phrase, in the process have responsibilities too, right? So the individuals have responsibilities, colleagues have responsibilities, managers have responsibilities, organizations have responsibilities. As an industry, if we're if we're talking about a journalism industry, we all we all have a responsibility. And kind of one of the areas where I've seen most traction is when people come together and have these conversations, like in community groups like this, where we've where we're building these networks and we're actually saying, you know what? This is really important. Let's move on it. Um, I think that there was something else I was going to say, but with my late afternoon brain in the UK, it's just gone out of my head. So sorry about that. No problem. Um, if you are still in the audience, uh, you've got about 15 minutes left for questions and probably uh, 10 minutes all in all, because uh, I'll probably take five minutes to close. So please make sure that you get your final questions in the chat now. Um, Moonlight Erin says, sometimes it's hard to know if you have the capacity to take on a new, potentially mentally difficult research project. You talked a little bit about how certain topics, i.e. sexual violence, can be difficult to research due to your past experiences. How do you check in with yourself and decide if you're able to do it at that moment? I've learned over time and I think that I was really, really unwell with PTSD. And so, you know, I've kind of hit the bottom and over time I've kind of been forced to rebuild myself. Um, and it's been hard. Um, there's some, and, you know, recovery is not linear. So there's some days are still a bit grim, although I don't have PTSD anymore. But the reason I mention that is because I've learned over time what my coping mechanisms are. And also I've learned over time, I've become much more self-aware in terms of whether something doesn't feel right and where I am in terms of, let me give you this example. Okay, so I've got two glasses of water here. Let me just try that bit again. I've got two glasses of water here. You can see they've got different volumes in them. Those of you can see the screen. So basically two glasses of water, two different volumes. Some days my emotional load is like that. So actually I've only got that much space left for someone to pour stuff in or to take on. And that stuff that I'm taking on might be work stuff, it might be personal stuff, it might be just other shit that's floating around. It might be stuff going on in the world that is just really difficult to deal with. Some days, my emotional load might be like that. Actually, I've got quite a lot of space. So I'm much better now at kind of identifying where my emotional load is, and also what kind of coping mechanisms I have in terms of reducing the volume or pushing back kind of the other crap that's going to pour into my glass, if you like. So the first thing I'd say is kind of, fortunately, I've kind of, by nature of just having lived through some shit, um, which is not the, obviously the technical term, um, I, I've kind of, I've, I've identified that. What I often do, Erin, is, is kind of, uh, Moonlight Erin, is is, um, is I will think about things like, in terms of a, a flak jacket. So when I used to run into the International Youth Safety Institute, or those of you who might have had the um experience of going into conflict zones um you might have used a flak jacket before personal protective equipment um that's really important for physical safety but when we're dealing with something which might impact us psychologically we might think of the analogy of an emotional flak jacket and it's a it's a term that is used by a few people including sean williams who's a bbc she's a former bbc presenter and she's a psychologist so she talks about the emotional flak jacket what do we need to put up what are the protective measures we have that we can don in advance of something to be aware, to kind of support us if we're going to go into something difficult? So, so you know, do we have our emotional flak jacket to hand? Okay? I think being able to have a conversation with somebody 
when you're taking on a project as well, as, as well as having a conversation with yourself in terms of, okay, I feel like I might be able to deal with this right now, but there may come a point, may come a point further down the track that actually I'm not able to, and I'll need to take a break, or I might need to turn away from this briefly. So I feel like having the, and again, this is about privilege, right? And I recognize that not everybody feels like they have the privilege. Having that privilege of being able to say, right now, I can deal with this because of my emotional load. If my emotional load creeps up, what are the coping mechanisms I've got to reduce that? But that doesn't necessarily mean that further down the track, I'm going to feel exactly the same way. Hopefully that's helpful. A lot of people really like that analogy um, of both ones. I really like the uh, don't over, uh, overflow yourself as well. Don't kind of overfill your glass. Um, yeah. KJ asked earlier, why can two people see the exact same event at the exact same time? One person can say meh and keep going with life and the other's world collapses around them. I don't know if you've had instances where you've spoken to people who've kind of witnessed the same, the same topic or same traumatic event and have had very different responses. Um, have you had any research done on kind of why that might be? Um, so I'm going to give you the layperson's version, the layperson's answer here, not the Anthony Feinstein answer, because he will have a really smart answer. Um, so we know that two people can be exposed to exactly the same trauma and can deal with it very, very differently. Okay? So somebody might develop PTSD from an experience and somebody might not. So you might, as as you've just said there, that meh, you might be like, meh, fine. Or it might be like your world, your entire world falls apart around it. So I think a lot of that comes down to, again, where that person is in their life, that emotional load that we've just discussed there, what else they're dealing with. It may also come down to stuff that's going on in their brain, you know, how their brain is tuned or, or fine-tuned, you know, just simply what's going on biologically. Um, it will also probably have a significant, what will also probably have a significant impact is that person's identity and history. So how significantly they are impacted by something may depend on what they've been exposed to in the past, what they've been. So, so again, back to that point about sexual violence, I have a friend who can't, can't encounter anything to do with um, abuse of animals. They just can't or abuse of children. I mean, that's horrific in itself, but this is just like, they can't even, they can't even cover a story. They can't cover a story, not even. Um, but so I think that we're all different, right? We all have these different, backgrounds and that's why it's so wonderful that you know we're able to kind of bring all this multiplicity of angles and perspectives to things but we will come from a different starting point um or all have different backgrounds perspectives and i would say that is probably the reason reason why and i think that the other thing that's probably really important to note and it's something that anthony says to me a lot of the time is again and we haven't really discussed this a lot is the importance of um strong relationships so you might be feeling very, um, you might be in a relationship that's not a very healthy relationship, or you might be feeling very isolated, or you might be in a relationship that's a really strong relationship, but you feel very comfortable talking with somebody, and maybe it's a partner at home, or maybe it's a friend or a colleague um, that, that you've got a really strong kind of uh, relationship of trust with. If you have that, then that again is really protective. And so you may be able to kind of deal with things better. One final point I just mentioned is, when I used to work for NC, we used to think about sending people into difficult places. We'd often talk about before, during and after. 
And I think from a psychological perspective as well, having support, knowing we've got support, that preemptive protective support, so the emotional flak jacket, knowing that we can check in with folks during something and knowing that a support system is in place for us afterwards or that we have our own support system in place afterwards is really critical. One point I want to make that I haven't referenced already is that my PTSD symptoms didn't happen for about eight years until about eight years after my trauma. It's really important. I'm not saying that that would happen with everybody, but it's really important that we recognize that sometimes there's a significant time lag between the things that we're exposed to and the impact it has on us. And because we might start behaving in ways which are kind of not normal to us, or we might see other people behaving in those ways too. And it might be like, there's no specific kind of immediate connection. So I think it's really important to kind of just uh, mention that. And that's why kind of mitigation and kind of checking in on yourself is so important throughout kind of your research. Um, in particular, because you don't know what impact it's going to have on you in, in 10, 20 years time. Um, it's really important to keep kind of checking in on yourself. I'm going to wrap in a second, but there's time for one more question, if that's okay with you, Hannah. Um, bear in mind, Hannah is not a clinician, but I know, Hipatia, you've asked this a couple of times, so I want to make sure that we address it. Do you have any advice for those of us in the field to sleep? after traumatic events. I'm sure you know how wired one can feel, yet utterly knackered. I think that's where I struggle the most. Um, just from your own personal experience of PTSD, um, is there any methods that you use perhaps that helped you sleep um, if that was something that um, disturbed you? And is, is there any advice, obviously not the fact that you're not a clinician and definitely seek medical advice for that, um, is there any advice you'd have for that particular issue? Yeah, so, so your point about asking for help, I think it's, it's super important. You know, if, you, if you've got any questions, concerns, please ask for help, clinical help um, if, if, if necessary. Um, if you don't need to be connected to your phone, disconnect from your phone. You know, if you can actually put your phone out of the room, you might not always be able to do that. Do that. If you can do that half an hour or an hour before you go to bed, do that as well. Lot, it depends on completely depends on your environment. So, you know, it might be, for instance, that you can take a shower or a bath or something before you go to bed. Might not be, obviously. It might be that you can, um, you know, it depends on whether you, you sleep easier, hot or cold. You know, it, it, temperature kind of can, can have a variant. I've given up alcohol. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to give it up forever. I used to indulge in quite a lot of alcohol. Some people may, some people may not. That has helped my sleep quite significantly. I try to do mindfulness. Uh, you know, mindfulness can be a bit of a kind of like, so so kind of cheesy. But actually, um, I try to think about things in the day that I'm kind of grateful for. I think try to kind of steady my breathing. I will lie there with my hands kind of on my chest or on my, one hand on my chest, one on my belly, and inhale for five and exhale for five. And that does tend to help me. Or I'll do a full body check in terms of just kind of scrunching my feet relaxing them all the way up my body kind of tensing it relaxing it all the way through um and so some of those things um some of those things help sometimes eating a bit further back in terms of not going to bed on a on a really full belly can help as well um lots of different things but i think also sometimes worrying about not sleeping makes it worse um and i would also say that you know quickly back not to to the fact i'm not the clinician but sometimes asking for help like for instance i was given sleeping tablets for a while because i i couldn't sleep 
And so I don't think there's any shame in asking for that. Um, maybe you want herbal tea or something instead. I don't know, but maybe something in there will resonate. I'm not entirely sure that I've given you a lot of answers, but um, melatonin, somebody's popped in melatonin. A lot of my colleagues in the States, I don't think I can get it here, but a lot of my colleagues in the States have said that uh, melatonin has helped them as well. Thank you so much for your really uh, detailed answer there um, and honest answer as well. Um, thank you so much, Hannah, for talking with us. And thank you, everybody in the audience as well today um, for the incredible questions and discussion. Um, it's amazing to see how supportive everybody is of each other. Um, again, we've had constant conversations in the server over the last couple of weeks about kind of respecting each other and having constructive conversations and keeping in mind the kind of background each individual comes into the server with when having conversations. And I think this particular talk came at the right time um, for everyone just to kind of have a check-in with themselves and to also kind of uh, be there for each other. So thank you so much to everybody who attended and listened in. Um, thank you to everyone who's listening in on the podcast. And thank you again, Hannah, for joining us. Thank you for having me and take care of everybody. Take care of yourselves, everybody, is what I was trying to say. <laughs> and take care of each other. Um, thanks, Charlie. And really, you know, don't underestimate the support of allyship in mental health. So it's great that you're having this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a stage talk live where you can ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg slash bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Dawn by Newer Self and is courtesy of Artlist.